Amen. Awesome. Yeah, uh, Bree, it's so cool to have you and Brian here. It's, I, it's cool to have you guys here. It's so good. I mean, I know there's probably other people, but see, here's the, what you guys don't know is that Bree was across the hall from me for, like, I don't know, years. We shared, like, office, like, in the office area over there, my office, and then Bree's was across the hall, and I'm going to embarrass Bree a little bit, but, like, about every six weeks there, for a while, Bree would come to my office and lay on the floor and cry and say, why don't I have a husband? And God has given her a husband, and he's here. And I don't know, it's just, it makes me feel good. I like it. <clears throat> um, hey, everybody here, does everybody here know uh, Justin and Kendall? Everybody here know, know Bubba and Kendall? Does everybody here know Lux Huckabee? No, nobody knows Lux Huckabee, right? Yeah, uh, Heather, are you holding Lux Huckabee? Yeah, what, what? Yeah, uh, Bub and Ken just had a, had, a new, had a new kid. It's number three, and it's their firstborn son, and that's, that's a reason to rejoice. <clears throat> yeah, his name, is, his name is Lux Huckabee. What about that, huh? That's, that's pretty unbelievable. Awesome. Uh, one, one more announcement. Gosh, it seems like announcement morning. I feel bogged down in the pits of announcements. But um, do you guys get the, the the little weekly newsletters that Ray sends out? Oh, okay, okay. Uh, this week, Ray sent out in the newsletter. It's about the talent show. He said, "Hey, if you've got a picture of your family, like at Christmas time, we want you to email those back to Ray." Did anybody get that? Okay, look, we want to get that. We want to get them. Uh, in, what are you doing, Ray? What does this mean? We've had three. Okay, here, what that means is we're going to have a really boring section in the talent show, okay? And so it'd be great if you've got a picture of you or your family during Christmas time. We're going to make a little montage. It's going to be really special. You're going to cry. But we need your pictures. So if you could send those to Ray like by Wednesday, you know, don't bring us the picture on Sunday night, all right? It won't work. But if you, if you email, email it now, we'll get it, and it'll, we'll make something that'll make you cry. It's one of our goals. We just want to, like, play off of your emotions. <clears throat> yeah. I tell you what, why don't you do this this morning? We're going to do something new. Why don't you open up your Bibles to Psalm 95? It's going to be our main text this morning, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to warn you now, all right? I'm warning you now that we're going we're gonna to hit more Scripture in the next 45 minutes than I've ever hit in my entire life. All right? Now, the only other time I've ever approached using this much scripture in church, it made a lot of people really mad. wasn't here. I, I was nearly run off from a place because I used the Bible so much one time. You think I'm joking. I'm not. Some of you know the story. But I can't tell the story because it would hurt someone's feelings. All right, moving right along. Let's look at Psalm 95, all right? We're going to look at like the first seven verses and then we'll hit 8 through 11, okay? Psalm 95. Come and let us sing to joy. Come and let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the King above all gods, And in his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. 
The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. Come and let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. Who knows how to say that? And as you did at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation, and I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Let's just pray for a second. Father, would you open up our minds, and would you open up our hearts to receive understanding? Father, we ask that you would that you would allow us to receive your instruction this morning. God, if we're, just, uh, if, we're just, if we're just here out of the repetition of Sundays, just because what you do on Sundays, you just come to church, God, would you afford us an opportunity to be awakened to the reality that you are in the room and that your word is good for us? Amen. All right. Psalm 95, it's a good one. Uh, it's the beginning of, of, some, of some special kind of worship psalms in, in the book of Psalms from like 95 through on, on through 100. Um, these are songs that you would sing when you go on up to Jerusalem. And um, I, I love all of these psalms, especially Psalm 95 and Psalm, psalm 100. They're really close to my heart. But let's, uh, let's look at this this morning because I believe the Lord has a, has a word for us. I, I, I don't know that... It's been a long time since I've encountered Jesus as much as I have this week just in preparation for it. Today, it's just like just having one encounter with the Spirit after another, and um, that's no guarantee that I'm going to get anything out. <clears throat> but it was good for me. All right. Verse one: Come and let us sing for joy to the Lord, and let us shout to the Rock of our salvation. Verse two: Let us come before Him with thanksgiving, and extol Him with music and song. Um, See, here's the deal. Historically speaking, God's people have always been a worshiping people. Uh, before, before the, the Big C Church, when it, was, when it was a tribe of people wandering in the desert, even before then, even when it, was, when, it was just, when it was just Abraham and God and he was traveling with his family, and when it was Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and there was this family that increased, the people of God is all, have always been a worshiping people and even historically, it moves through the church. There's something, there's something about knowing God that will end up in song. Uh, it's not true of every religion. You can, you can look through world religions. Uh, lots, of, lots of religions have song, but they don't have the same kind of song that we have because the song that's in God's people is a song of joy. That's a big deal, all right? And, and, and the kind of worship that comes out of God's people is something that's completely unique in human history. And so, number one, we're just a worshiping people. It's like, why do we have a band? And why do we have speakers? Why do we have amplifiers? Why do we turn it up loud? Why do we annoy some people with the volume? The reason we annoy some people with the volume is because the best way, one of the very best ways, my favorite way to encounter the Lord is through worship. And it should be worship that is full of joy. It should be worship that, that is full of passion. It should be worship that's, that comes from a, from a place of of encounter. It should be worship that isn't sad and droopy. A lot of times we think, well, okay, we're at church. Church is boring. And church is the place where we sit down and we do boring things and we listen to some boring guy tell us boring stories. And then we, we, we endure it till noon. And then we go home and thank God we got out of there. And, you know, we can go to Mr. Gaddy's, right? No, see, 
that's not the way it is. See, worship in God's house and worship among God's community is supposed to be, number one, it's the thing that defines us. It's, a, it's our interaction with the Lord. But number two, it's, it's the kind of interaction that we have with Him. I want you to look at the, at the first couple verses. Um, look at how many times joy and exuberance is, is mentioned. In verse 1, let us sing for joy. Right along in verse 1, let us shout aloud and let us come before Him with thanksgiving and let, him, let us extol Him with music and song. So number one, when we, when we get together to worship God, it, it's not like, there's no rule anywhere in the Bible that says, you know, it should be quiet and it should be boring. Quite the opposite. Here's the other thing too. When the psalmist writes, hey, let's come before the Lord with joy and song and let's shout aloud to him. He's actually not suggesting it. It's a what? Command. You know what you're thinking? Well, I don't know about that. That feels weird. It's actually a command. Not only that, but I want you to notice this as well. Look in verse 1. It's in verse 1 and 2. Come and let us sing for joy. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. And let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with song and music. See, here's the deal. Worshiping the Lord, the worshiping the Lord isn't just a solo event. It's a together event. Like, if you, you can't know God and be by yourself for very long. There's something about encountering God. There's something about knowing God that will eventually bring you with people. And there's something about worship that is a together event. You know, I, you know some people are very uncomfortable with, uh, with certain aspects of worship. They're like, well, you know, yeah, I understand we should worship God, but I could never raise my hands because that's weird and makes me feel weird. I, I, don't like, I do that in my prayer closet at home where no one can see me. Except... That the command of Scripture is that we should worship God with, with our whole heart. We should worship Him with joy, and it should be a together event. Like, why do we do this every single Sunday morning? Why do we give sometimes our entire meeting to just playing music and singing? Because there's, it, in many ways, is the most important thing that happens when we get together. You know, I tell you guys this all the time. You know, when we, when we worship for 45 minutes, it's a 45-minute therapy session. Like, you can go pay $200 an hour and not get the benefits that you get when you come and say, God, you are my God and I am your son. You know? And that should be a joyous occasion. And it should, be occasion, it should be an occasion that doesn't divide us from the people of God, but it should be an occasion that plants us more firmly within the people of God. <clears throat> so, the, so the scriptures command us, together, all of us together, that we should come together, that we should sing for joy, that we should shout aloud, and that we should give him thanksgiving with music and song. But what about when you don't feel like it? Hmm. What about when you don't feel like it? Anybody ever come to church and be like, dude, the last thing I want to do is sing. I do not feel like it. There were three honest people just then. Yeah, what about when you don't feel like it? Well, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 says, Therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess His name. How can it be a sacrifice of praise if it's only when I feel like it? Sometimes the sacrifice is just to say, God, you know what? I really don't feel like it, but I'm going to anyway. I love what Bill Johnson said this week. He, he tweeted something. It was absolutely hysterical. I almost fell off my couch when I read it. He, sa- he said this on the Twitter. He says, if I only w- If I only do what I feel like I'm... If I only do what I feel like doing, I'm not a believer. I'm a feeler. That's pretty good. So our worship should be exuberant. It should be full of life. 
And in the midst of that, there should be joy and there should be thank, thanksgiving and there should be, a, there should be a grateful heart. I love verse 2 because it says, let us come before him with thanksgiving. There's this connection all the way through the scriptures, and it's, it's a connection between thankfulness and his presence, okay? Um, Ray, you can go ahead and put up Psalm 100, verse 4. Psalm 100, verse 4 says this. It says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. How do you, how do you enter the presence of the Lord? With thanksgiving. And even in Psalm 95, look at verse 2. It says, let us come before him with thanksgiving. See, here's the deal. Thankfulness is the door to the Lord. See, a lot of times we feel like God is a million miles away. Sometimes it feels like we're living life and people are around us. Uh, we have jobs. We're, 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 very, we're, we're, we're on our path. We're doing our thing. And it feels like for all of our best efforts, God is somewhere, but he's certainly not around me. And uh, anybody ever feel like that way? You know, it doesn't matter. You can pray eight hours a day. It doesn't matter. It just feels like God is vacant. He has, he has forgotten and forsaken me. And one of the, one of the cool things here that we're, that we're seeing in Scripture, both in Psalm 95 and in Psalm 100, is that there's a, a forever connection between thanksgiving and between the presence of God. How do we come into the presence of God? The, the sure way to come into the presence of God is with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the door to the Lord. The Lord might feel like he's a million miles away, but he's never further away than Thanksgiving. He's always behind the door. Like, how do I find his presence? I just become thankful. And so when, and so when the band plays here at the vineyard, you know, it, it's loud. People are singing. We have guitars. We have drums. And, and one of the things that, that can happen in all of this is, is that we can, we can get lured into the mindset that what is happening on the stage is a concert. You know, we can get lured into this feeling that what's happening on the stage is a concert. And one of the reasons we can get lured into that is because we live in, we live in an age where most things are performance-oriented, okay? We watch, we watch American Idol. There's nothing wrong with American Idol. It's just that it, it, it filters who I am, okay? It puts glasses on it. It, it, it informs my worldview. So we watch American Idol, uh, and then, you know, our band is pretty good. I think they're great. I, I, don't, I, I love them. You know, I think they're incredible. And so the band is good. The singers are good. And, and sometimes what happens is I'm standing here and the, sp- the sound is good. Bobby makes it sound great for us. And I'm tempted to believe that what's happening is, is some sort of a performance. And so my job is just to like stand before the performance and enjoy the performance. Like the guitar is shredding. And yes, man, that rocks, right? The problem with that is, is I end up missing an opportunity to encounter the presence of God through thankfulness. See, the, the, band is just, the band is just a help. It, they're just helping us, they're helping us get us on the path of thankfulness so that we can come into his presence. When we come into his presence, we see him for who he is. When I see him for who he is, I encounter his goodness and worship explodes in my heart. Where does worship come from? Worship comes from encountering the goodness of God. Where does thankfulness come from? It comes from encountering the goodness of God. And in that place, there should be joy. I love this in Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, You will fill me with joy in your presence. You make known to me the path of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Where is joy? In his presence. How do I get to his presence? Yeah, like, you know, some of us live in depression land for, you know, like for 30 years. 
And here's the prescription to get out of depression land. If you want to, you can write it on paper. It'll feel more official. (laughs) This is the prescription for getting out of depression land. Become thankful. I know that seems weird, huh? Even if you, you can be thankful, even if you don't feel it. You can just begin to confess, God, you have been good to me. So you become thankful. Thankfulness will open up a doorway into his presence. When I come into his presence, I will experience his goodness. I will, I will, worship will become the nature of my heart. And in that place, I will encounter fullness of joy. There is no joy outside of experiencing the presence of Jesus. Every other thing is a waterless oasis. There is no joy outside of the presence of Jesus. How do we get into the presence of Jesus? We get into the presence of Jesus with thankfulness. And here's what I wanted to get to this morning, you guys. It's this. It's that thankfulness is basic faith, and it's the opening of the spiritual eye, okay? Thankfulness looks at life, and it sees the hand of the Creator, where others see hard work and intelligence, the thankfulness, the thankful see God. I want to say that again. Thankfulness is the opening of the spiritual eye where everyone else sees intelligence and hard work, the thankful see God. It's a doorway into his presence. Thankfulness is a worldview that acknowledges God's presence. I want, to, I want to read you a couple of scriptures this week that have really, really worked on me a little bit. This is out of Isaiah chapter 51. And while we read this, I just want you to, to ask yourself, what is thankfulness? Well, here's thankfulness, okay? And I want you to notice here as well, that there, notice the connection between the activity of God, His goodness toward His people, thankfulness, and joy, Okay? God's activity toward his people, thankfulness and joy. This is what the Lord says. He says, listen to me, you who pursue, righteous, who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave you birth. When I called him, he was only one man and I blessed him and I made him many. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the song of singing. Why will there be joy, gladness, thanksgiving and the the sound of singing? Because God has been good to his people. Where Where does joy, thankfulness, and an encounter with God come from? It comes from wearing thankfulness glasses that that realize that where I'm at in life isn't because I'm the smartest or the most hardworking or the guy who got up earliest or stayed out the latest. It's because God has been incredibly good to me. When we put that worldview on, we put on a worldview of encountering Jesus. And when we, when we have an encounter with Jesus, that's the place where fullness of joy is. I want to read you another one. This is out of Jeremiah chapter 30. <clears throat> this is what the Lord says. I will restore the fortunes of Jacob's tents and have compassion on his dwellings. The city will be rebuilt on her ruins, and the palace will stand in its proper place. From them will come songs of thanksgiving and the sound of rejoicing, and I will add to their numbers, and they will not be decreased. I will bring them honor, and they will not be disdained. Their children will be as in days of old, and their community will be established before me. I will punish all who oppress them. Why will there be songs of thanksgiving and the sound of rejoicing? 
Because God acts on behalf of his people. That's part of it. But here's the the other part. Because the people realize that God is acting on their behalf. See, here's the deal. The ability to see God in my past and respond in the present is foundational for me to have faith for God in the future. The ability for me to see that God's hand has been working in my past and respond in the present is a foundation for me to have faith for God, towards God in the future. So let's look at verse 3. So verse 1 and 2, it's like, here's what you do. Let's get together. Let's sing for joy. Let's shout to the rock. Let's come before him with thanksgiving. Let's have a thankful and grateful heart. Let's extol him with music. Verse 3 is why. I've shared with you a couple reasons why. Because God is good and he acts before his people. But then verse 3 is, it's just because God is God. It's because he's great. So why do we worship? Why be thankful? It's because of what God has done and because of who he is. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. The Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In verse 3, the psalmist isn't, isn't trying to say that there are actually other gods. There are actually no other gods. They're just illusions. But he's saying that God is the great God, and there is none like him. Uh, in Exodus chapter 15, this is, when, uh, this is after the children of Israel have, have, been, have been taken out of Egypt. They've seen the ten plagues fall upon the house of Egypt, and they've walked through the Red Sea, and they begin to sing a song. And this is part of the song that they sing. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Where did that song come from? That song came from a people who encountered the goodness of God. God swept in and he saved them. He pulled them. Can you imagine? You walk through a sea and you walk on dry land. On your left, there is a great wall of water. On your right, there is a great wall of water. And you walk through. And when you get through, the wall comes down and kills all of your enemies. That's a good day. That's like, a, that's a good day, you know? Where do lyrics like that come from? It come, it come, they come from people who have seen that God is the great God and before him there are no others. See, our understanding of who God is is powerfully shaped by our ability to receive his redemptive work in our life. Verse 4 and 5. Psalmist continues the meditation on why worship the Lord. In his hand, see, the God is great. For the Lord is is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands have formed the dry land. See, here's what the psalmist is saying in verse 4. He's saying that the Lord's, the Lord, uh, the Lord's, he is God, he is God in every sort of way. Look at verse 4 here. He says, in his hand are the depths of the earth. So from the, from the lowest place, and the mountain peaks belong to him. So from the lowest to the highest, it all belongs to him. Why is he God? Because he, from, from, the, from top to m- the furthest bottom, he is the one who rules. There's, and everywhere in between. But then not only that, it says, it says in verse 5, it says the sea is his. Why is the sea his? The sea is his because he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Um, any, of you guys, um, any of you guys sort of into like art and architecture at all? Even if you're not, anybody here ever heard of, uh, heard of that house? Um, it's in, I think it's in Pennsylvania, called Falling Waters. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Who designed Falling Waters? Frank Lloyd Wright. Anybody know who commissioned Frank Lloyd Wright to build the house? 
take that as a no. Why is it that we remember Frank Lloyd Wright, but we don't remember the guy who commissioned him to build the house? The reason we remember Frank Lloyd Wright is because Frank Lloyd Wright built the house. There is an honor and there is an ownership that forever comes from being the one who made it. The guy who commissioned him to make it was a guy named Edgar Kaufman. But no one remembers his name, and he was the owner of the house. But in a, in a, in there is a sense in which Edgar didn't own the house, and it was Frank Lloyd Wright's house because it came from his, from his mind, it came from his genius, and it was the work of his hands. And that's what the psalmist is saying about the Lord. He's saying, he's the Lord, he's the great God, and the reason he's the great God is because he owns the whole planet from the depths of the earth to the highest mountains, and he owns it because he made it. It belongs to him. So all of creation belongs to God because he made it. One of, the, one of the things the psalmist is getting at here is that one of the ways that we can encounter God is we can encounter God through his creation. Anybody in here ever encountered the Lord through creation? Had a God experience out in nature? Yeah. Um, I remember uh, it was maybe a couple years ago, Heather and I, we went with some dear friends out to California. We went up to Northern California and we were, we were hanging out and we went up to Redding for a few days, but then we decided we would take a hard ride at Redding and we drove through these crazy mountains and we, we drove to the coast, we, we went into the Redwood Forest. And I'll, I'll never forget, I, I, I literally, I went into the Redwood Forest uh, one, one afternoon, and it was me and Heather, and it was Sammy and Tiffany. Uh, when we left Reading, it was 111 degrees, okay? It was August. We dropped over these mountains, and I saw the, the little the temperature ticker on our, on our car, you know? It went from 111 to 55 in like three minutes. Wind is blowing off the coast. And we drive up into the Redwood Forest, and it's like... Gandalf lives in this place. I mean, it's like Lord of the Rings. I couldn't believe it. And uh, we get out there, <clears throat> and we're in, this, we're in this one grove, and the grove was about 40 acres big, so we couldn't really explore it all. But um, Heather took my picture at the base of a tree. I wish I'd brought it with me this morning. She took my picture at the base of a tree, and the, the tree was, I, I want to remember this, the tree was 32 feet across. I climbed up the tree as far as I could, okay? And Heather took a picture of me. And when you look at the picture, you can't see me. I looked up. The tree is almost 400 feet tall. You can't see the top of it. It's 380-some feet tall. I said, I've never felt so small in my entire life. I thought, and here's the deal. I've grown up knowing the Lord my entire life. So this, this isn't that big of a stretch. But I was in those woods with my wife and some of my very best friends. And the only thing that pretty much any of us could think or even say for the first 10 minutes is, there is a God in heaven. Like, there, uh, this is unbelievable. There were these tree laps that had fallen down and there were um, giant rocks. And it was, like a, it was like a big tree stump. I don't even know, it was a piece of a log. It wasn't the, the main part of the tree. It was, you could tell it was, a, um, it was one of the branches that had fallen out of the tree. And so it was between two rocks, and it was positioned in a way where you could jump up a rock and then climb up this thing. Only you shouldn't have climbed up it. But I climbed up it, okay? And as I was climbing up, I'm like, this is easy. It's so big. And the next thing you know, I'm 70 feet off the ground. And Sammy's like, Adam, I'm very concerned for you right now. (laughs) Sammy was very worried. In fact, I was very worried because I wasn't entirely sure how I was going to get down. What is it about creation it, it tells us something of who the Lord is. 
And it's actually intended to be that way. Let's worship the Lord. Let's worship Him because He's great, because He does great things. He owns the, he owns the, he owns the earth because He made it. And because He made it, there's something about, there's an indelible fingerprint of God that's been planted on the planet. That's what Romans says. I want to read to you a passage out of Romans, okay? Especially as it relates to worship. We've looked at this before, but I want to, I want to go over it again. This is what Paul writes. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the... All, against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Stop. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that you can go out and you can look at the planet. You can go out into the redwood forest and the redwood forest, all the trees that are planted in the redwood forest, are, they're communicating something to the people of the planet. And the thing they're communicating is, is very simple. There is a God in heaven. Like when you come over to my house on Roachville Road, and when you walk out through my vineyard, and you walk out the back of the field, and occasionally you'll see a red fox run through, you know what the red fox is telling you? The red fox is telling you there is a God in heaven. That's what, that's what Paul says. Verse 21, he says, but for although, for although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. I want you to underline that, in your, in your, at least in your brain. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another, and they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and, and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. What is Paul saying? He's saying who God is is clearly known by His creation. It, like creation is telling us that there is a God in heaven, but people didn't what? They didn't, they didn't glorify Him as God and they didn't give thanks to Him. What is that? Gratefulness, thankfulness, worship. They didn't worship God for any of that. And because of that, their thinking became futile. And look at verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they began to worship created things rather than the Creator. What's the point? The point is this, that when I cultivate thankfulness and when I cultivate a lifestyle of worship and thankfulness in my life, it is like cultivating insulation against deception over my heart and over my mind. Worship and thankfulness is an insulating barrier against deception. When I lose thankfulness, when I lose gratefulness toward God, and when I, lose, when I lose a lifestyle of worship, the first thing that happens is I begin to open wide the doors to deception in my life. And the next thing you know, if that goes on for a period of time, I, it, it's, very, it's very possible for any one of us in the room to end up being the kind of person who ends up worshiping the, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. You think, how can that happen? You, know, you think, I would never be the kind of person who would go out and worship a bird or an animal or a mountain. Stop worshiping and find out. I don't suggest that, by the way. You think, have you ever watched those shows on Discovery Channel and go, why did people bow down to blocks of wood and, and stones that they crafted and, and, and bronze images that they made with their own hands and call it God and worship it? Why did they do it? It's because they didn't worship the God that was plainly evident to them. They didn't, they didn't cultivate thankfulness. They didn't cultivate a heart of gratitude. And they didn't cultivate worship towards the Creator and in doing so, deception got opened wide open in their life. And the next thing you know, they were bowing down to gold images. See, worship and thankfulness is, 
It's protection. Worship and thankfulness aren't just protection. I want to say it. That's the negative way to say it. I want to say it the positive way. Worship and thankfulness allow us to see the activity of God in our life. When we see the activity of God in our life and when we respond to it, it's like lenses. It's, it's worldview change, okay? The lenses, the worldview gets wiped off and then we're able to further see the activity of God in our life. Verse 6. There's a change in tone in verse 6. He says, Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. And so in verse 6, there's a change in tone, and we go from laughing and joy to falling flat on our faces. And, and here's the reason we can go from laughing and joy in worship to falling flat on our faces, is when we get this revelation. See, the revelation in, in verse 4 and 5 is that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. But the revelation in in verse 6 and 7 is that God is my creator. It goes from macro to micro. And and this is is a big deal. This is proof that there's increasing revelation for people, for you and I, as we encounter God. Okay? Let me show you this. The passage we just looked at in, in, in Romans, Paul says, Look, who God is is plainly seen in his creation. It's open and available to everyone. So you can go out and you can see that there is a creator. When we begin to respond to that creator, based upon simply his creation, it opens up, it opens up revelation in our life. And we can go from just the fact, we can go from a revelation of that there is a God in heaven who created the heavens and the earth. We can go to a much deeper revelation. And the deeper revelation is there's a God in heaven and he created me. So that's the deeper revelation. And because of that, we'll bow down in worship and we'll kneel before our maker. Not only that, I love what verse 7 says. He says, God is not just my maker, but he's my caretaker. Verse 7 says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. This is why gratefulness and thankfulness in worship is such a big deal. I'm a created being, but I'm not just a created being, I'm a cared for being. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that, a sparrow can't even fall out, of the, fall out of the sky and die without God knowing about it. That's pretty unbelievable. He goes on to say that, that, that God the Father has every hair on your head counted. Now, what kind of God counts dying sparrows and hairs on the head? You ever thought about that? It's, it's the kind of God who is intimately in love with his creation. He really cares about it. One sparrow falls to the ground. He knows about it. I'll tell you a couple stories just about how much the Lord cares for us. These are somewhat trivial, but I think they only make the point that much bigger. Sometimes we think God only cares about the big stuff in our life. He cares about the, the tiniest things. Um, last year, it was probably about this time last year, Heather and I were hanging out together. I can't really remember the moment. I think we were like driving or something and, and, and we were talking about the upcoming year because we always like to have goals for the year and um, I suggest that you have goals for the year. And we were just talking about like, you know, 2010. What do we want to do? Where do we want to go? What, what's up with 2010? And, and I remember Heather said to me, she goes, I want to go to Chile. Well, this is not like my wife, okay? This is not like my wife. My wife is very much a homebody. She says, I want to go to Chile. I'm like, dude, I, 
You can, I want to go to Chile. I want this book. And so I just remember, we just said, God, would you, would you give us, an, would you make us a way to go to Chile? Like, we didn't have the money to go to Chile. Like, plane tickets are 1500 bucks. Now, this is how good the Lord is because he cares about his kids. Two, within two weeks, I get an email. I get an email from a pastor that I had, that I had only met one time in Peru. And we had had maybe like a bit of a heart connection. Within two weeks, I get an email from this guy. And he says, Adam, the Lord told me that I need to fly you and your wife to Chile so that you can do ministry here and we'll take care of you. Come on. I mean, what is the point of that? The point of that is, you know, the point of that is, is that I'm his son. Heather is, her, is, is his daughter. He created us. But he didn't just create it for us. He didn't just create us. He, he cares for us. Like even the tiniest little things. So we went to Chile. Had an incredible time. The Lord broke out. And we had, a, I mean, we just, one thing after another. Um, another similar story. I remember, no, Heather and I, we've been married 11 years. It'll be almost 12. We're almost 12. We'll be 12 in, in May. And I remember, this was before we were married. I was telling Justin this story this week. This is before we were married. So this is like, I don't know. It's at least 12 years ago. Uh, we'd been dating for a while, and we're, Heather's mom and dad have been living out on, out on Roachville for a good while, which is right where Taylor County and Greene County connect. It's really beautiful. And I remember one day we were driving in her, in her she had this really strange car, this Dodge Raider. <laughs> you know, I think there were eight of them ever made. <laughs> My favorite feature of the car, it was, it had this inclometer, and it would, you know, they were supposed to tell you when it would flip over. <laughs> only, only, like, like the only way, it was like the most useless thing ever. Like, like it would, the only way that it would go to the, to the point and tell you it's dangerous if the car was already turned over. You know, it was like, it's like, did I really need that to know that I was in danger, you know? But we were in her car, and we had just pulled out from her parents' house, and just a little bit away, you know, just if you go out her parents' driveway, if you turn right, like you're going to go back toward uh, Meadow Creek, uh, there's, the, I mean, like 200 yards down the, on the right, there's this really long field, really, really super long field. And it, it just stunningly beautiful. At that time, the Wilson zone, it was, and it was just a big hay field, okay? And I remember we stopped, and, and we're not married yet. And, and I just look at Heather, and I go, man, it would, you know what I want? And she's like, what? She go, I said, I want to I own that field, and I want to live right there. It's like, yeah, man, that'd be, that'd be incredible. Wouldn't it be incredible to have a house like on that field and just live right here in this, this field? And I'm like, yeah, this would be incredible. Get back in the car, we go on. And most of you guys know the rest of the story. We live on that field, you know? The guy who owned a good portion of that field called me, and, and he, offered me, he offered me the middle section of that field at a price that was unheard of when I basically had no money. How did that work out? It worked out because God is incredibly good and he wants to take care of his own. So God is great. He's great because he owns it and he's great because he made us and he's great because he cares for us and all of those are reasons for worshiping God. And Before we go on, I want, I want, to, I want to say one more thing when it comes to the greatness of God, because sometimes that's abstract and we have to actually work on getting that fixed in our life, becoming aware of God's greatness. It, it can sometimes be a bit nebulous. But 
here's the deal. Human nature is, is to gravitate toward greatness. Every, every one of us is attracted toward greatness. You know? Um, it's the reason that LeBron and Kobe are the most popular basketball players in the NBA. You know why? Because they're the greatest. Human nature is, is to gravitate toward the greatness. When I, was, when, I was in, um, when I was in high school and I was first learning how to play guitar, I could tell you every single great guitar player out there. And I still can. You know why? Because we're attracted to greatness. Uh, I, I mean, I knew every great guitar player who had pretty much ever lived. I even knew the great banjo players. You know, I, I, even, knew about, I even knew about Steve Martin, and I even knew about Bela Fleck. And nobody knows about Bela Fleck, except for me and Haas. Okay? And the reason I knew, and the reason I knew is because it's human nature to be attracted to greatness. You know? We praise them, we follow them on Twitter, we dress like them, we work to imitate them, and all of this is fine, but none of that leads to life or joy. You know? I've seen that over and over again. It just doesn't lead to life or joy. Life and joy comes from the presence of Jesus. All right. Verse 8. This is where this this psalm just takes a really weird turn. So up to this point, it's like, hey, praise the Lord. Like, praise Him loud. Praise Him with songs. Be thankful because He's great, because He made the the depths of the earth. He made the highest mountains. And He made you. And He didn't just make you, but He created you. You should bow down before Him. Yada, yada. You should worship Him. Then it takes this very strange turn. In verse 8, it says, And today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in Meribah and as you did in that day in Massa in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. And I said, There are people who, whose hearts go astray, and so they have not known my ways. So I, declared them, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Anybody else realize, anybody else realize that's weird? Like, we got this, like, let's worship the Lord, and then it's like, warning talk about bad transitions right I love what Steve Pfeiffer did when he transitioned that was awesome well here's the deal verse 8 in verse 8 there's a hard transition here and it's a it's it's a transition that's about warning and um it's a warning to the, to, the, to the people of God. These verses are a reflection on Israel's history. Uh, that word, those words, Mirabah and Massa, they mean, um, they mean quarreling and, te- and testing, okay? And, they're, and they are a, um, they're a reference to an episode that happened in Exodus chapter 17. And we're going to look at that, okay? Because this is a warning from the Lord. A- Exodus chapter 17, 1 through 7. So the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, and they traveled, which you know it's going to be bad when you're in the desert of sin, right? You know nothing good can happen in the desert of sin. (laughs) I love that. I don't know why I love that. I'm like, yes, that's incredible. So the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded, and they camped at some place. But there was no water for the people to drink, and so they quarreled with Moses, and they said, Give us water to drink. And Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? And look at that. He says, Why do you put the Lord to the test? So here's the deal. They're, they're complaining to Moses, but what are they really doing? Testing the Lord. But the people were thirsty for water, and they grumbled against Moses, and they said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? 
And then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with, with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there with you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So as Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord. And this was what they tested the Lord. They tested him by saying, is, there, is the Lord among us or not? When the, when, the, when the people of Israel say, is the Lord among us or not? What they're really saying is, the Lord is not with us. Right? I want to put this in a little bit of perspective, because this is Exodus 17. Exodus 14 is end of the plagues and through the water. Exodus 15 is a song about, yea, we came through the water. Exodus 15 is also where Moses, where they found some water, but it was bitter, and the Lord said, just take your staff and throw it on the bitter water, and it'll become sweet. Okay? So get this. There's two million people. You've seen ten plagues fall on your enemies and not on you. You've walked through waters. You sang a song about going through the waters. You came to bad water. Moses throws a stick on bad water, and bad water is made good. And then the people are like, we are hungry. And so God says, don't worry about it. Just go out, and there'll be manna in the morning. And and that's, that's Exodus 16. There's manna in the morning, but there's not just manna in the morning. There's meat in the morning. There's quail. So there's manna and meat in the morning in Exodus 16. And then you get to Exodus 17, and they're thirsty. And here's the deal I want you to catch. They really were thirsty. This really was a problem, okay? This isn't a fake problem. This really was a problem. But, they're, but, the, but the people, they're, the, way they, the way they look at this problem is they begin to grumble, and they begin to grumble to Moses and the thing they're really saying among, among each other is, is the Lord among us or not? Which is really to say, the Lord is not with us. And what they end up saying is this. They say, we don't have any water, and God has brought us out of Egypt to kill us in the desert. It gets worse. Because here's what happens. The seeds of unbelief that get sown around in this little Exodus 17 moment, the seeds of unbelief end up growing a crop that keep an entire generation from entering the promised land. I want to read another passage of Scripture to you. This is after Moses has sent out 12 spies into the promised land for 40 days. And of the 12, only two bring back a good report. Remember, that was Joshua and Caleb. Two were good, ten were bad. Y'all remember the song? Actually, I don't remember the song. Ten were bad and two were good. Okay. Joshua and Caleb bring back a good report. The other ten say, no, we shouldn't go there. We are like grasshoppers. Before them, they will eat us. And so this is what, this is what the people of Israel, this is their response to the report that's brought back in Numbers chapter 14. And that night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If we had only died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us out, bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children would be taken as plunder. 
wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and we should go back to Israel. We should go back to Egypt. I read for a living. Now I want to read to you the Lord's response in Numbers 14, 28 through 35. This is what the Lord responds. He tells Moses, he says, okay, so tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do the very thing you have heard, I have heard you say. In the wilderness, your bodies will fall, every one of you, 20 years old or more, who has counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home except Caleb and Joshua. You like that, didn't you? As for the children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in, in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in the wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness for 40 years, one for each One year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which is banded together against me. They will meet meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die. How many of you realize that's a bad day? That's That's a huge major bummer. Major bummer. What's the point? A <clears throat> couple of things. Here's the first weird thing. The Lord actually gives them what they prophesied. You guys realize that? They said, you're going to kill us in the desert, and you're going to take our children away from us. And the Lord says, okay, you prophesied it in unbelief. Here we go. That's, that's one shocking moment to me. But a couple of things. Look at verse 8. Number, verse 8 says, Do not harden your heart as, as you did in Mirabah and Massa." Number one, we are all responsible for our own hearts. It is, and here's the deal. It is possible to live. It is possible to live in God's community. It is possible to live in his presence. It is possible to see God do things for us. It is possible to experience his benefits and yet have a heart of unbelief toward him. Where does unbelief come from? Unbelief springs up when we, uh, when we don't cultivate thankfulness and worship. That's what this psalm is all about. He's saying, enter his courts He's saying, come before the Lord with joy. He's saying, come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let's sing a loud song before him. Why is he saying that? He's saying that because when we do that, we actually sow seeds of faith. Thankfulness is basic faith. Thankfulness is basic faith. And when we don't do that, what we end up doing is we walk out of the field of our heart and what ends up growing are weeds of unbelief. And what ends up happening is this. We will, end, we will reinterpret. It's revisionist history. We can look, at our, we can look across our lives and God, could, God can, could have healed you from cancer and he could have saved all of your kids from rebellion and, and you can still look at that and go, God has not been good to me. I will yet unbelieve. That's, that's the point of this story in, in Exodus and Numbers is that you could walk through water and yet live a lifestyle of unbelief. You know, just because, just because we all come to church on Sunday morning and, and the presence of God is, is among us, it counts for nothing until I give my heart. In fact, if I come and stand in the presence of God and don't give my heart, I am only quickening unbelief in my life. It's a, it's a, it's a worse place. 
See, here's what happened. The children of Israel left Egypt, and even though God was a cloud by day, they had a literal cloud that showed them the way in front of them. And at night, a fire was blazing in the sky above them. They had a cloud by day. They had a fire by night. There were ten plagues that fell on their enemies. They walked through water. Uh, Moses threw a stick in bitter water, and it became sweet. Moses hit a rock, and I love that moment. When Moses hit the rock, it was, it was their own hard-heartedness, and that was the word of the Lord to them. He says, Moses, I want you to go out. There is no water. I want you to take the stick, and it's the, it's the rod of discipline, and I want you to lay it on the hard hearts. I want you to lay it on the rock. And, Mar- and Moses hit the rock, and it, it was as though it's a prophetic picture of, of John 7. Jesus says, if any of you are thirsty, come to me, and living waters will come from his inmost being. And it was as though the punishment that was, should have been on the people went on the rock, who is Jesus, and waters of life came out. Now, how good is the Lord? Like, you can be completely bitter, unbelieving. He's done everything for you. You begin to complain against Moses, except your complaints against Moses aren't really complaints against the leader. It's complaints against God. And God says, I won't hold that against you. I will lay the cross on the rock, and water will come out for your benefit. How good is the Lord? Yet, even in that moment, even, even in that moment of experiencing His goodness, see, here's the deal. Unbelief isn't an intellectual problem. It's a heart problem. See, unbelief isn't, isn't an intellectual inability to understand what's happening. Unbelief is a will problem. It's that I see it and I will not believe it. So we can live in his presence and still succumb to outright unbelief. And the reason we can succumb to outright unbelief is when we don't cultivate a lifestyle of worship, a lifestyle of thankfulness. So here's the deal. The children of Israel were with the Lord all that time. He leads them out of Egypt. He leads them out of bondage and out of oppression. They go into the desert. And in the desert, they did not worship God. You can look at this. and I don't have time to look at this right now. But you can look at this in Acts chapter 7. When they're about to stone Stephen, Stephen looks at the people who are about to stone him and says, Hey, our forefathers, when God delivered them, they did not worship God. They worshiped the gods of Egypt. What's the point? Why did they do it? Because they did not believe. Unbelief. See, when we, when, we, when we don't cultivate a, a lifestyle of worship before God, we just open the door of deception into our life, and God could come in and take us on dry land through an ocean, and we still not believe. I want to show you one more thing before we're done. See, this is a disease that's on all people. It's not just on the followers. It's actually on the leaders as well. So in, in Exodus 17, it's the first time there is no water. But in Numbers 20, almost the exact same thing happens again. There isn't any water. There isn't any water, and the people complained. And this isn't the first generation. This is actually their kids. They complain. And Moses and Aaron, they go out, <clears throat> and they get the plan of action from God. And God says, Moses, I want, this time I want you to speak to the rock. Don't hit the rock. But Moses became angry, and he hit the rock, and he hit it twice. And this is what the Lord said. He says, but the Lord said to Moses, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Number one, see, unbelief isn't just, isn't just like regular people's problems. It's, it's leaders' problems, too. You know, I'm not up here carrying the heavy stick. Dude, I'm telling you right now, this is my problem. And I love, I love how Lord, the Lord says this. He, sa- he told Moses earlier, he says, I want you to speak to the rock, okay? Moses goes out and whacks the rock twice with the stick. 
And God's, God's, God's view on the moment isn't, Moses, I'm mad at you because you hit the rock. Look how God interprets the moment. He says, you didn't trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites. You do, he, he, basically, what he is saying is this. He's saying, Moses, you didn't believe that all you had to really do was speak to the rock, so you whacked the rock. Why did you whack the rock? Because that's how it worked the last time. And you were angry. So this, is, uh, this psalm is a warning about unbelief. It's a warning to the mature believer, and it's a warning to the new believer. It's a warning to watch out that our hearts do not grow hard from unbelief. A couple more things. What is, what, is the, what is the primary manifestation of unbelief? At least from what we've looked at this morning, the primary manifestation of unbelief is grumbling and complaining. Let me put it this way. Grumbling and complaining are to unbelief as thanksgiving and worship are to faith. See, grumbling hardens my heart toward God and worship and thankfulness softens my heart toward God. And here's the deal. The reason this is such a big deal and the reason I wanted to take a little extra time this morning is because we live in, an, we live in a culture where unbelief and doubt are not just expected but it's actually become the hallmark of what is cool, relevant. I'm trying to look for the right word. Um, cool and relevant. And here's the reason that, it's, that unbelief has become cool and relevant. Because we've equated, we've equated unbelief with authentic, authenticity, you know? We, we've just said, you know, oh, I'm just telling you the truth about who I am, you know? And there is a, there is a part where where we want to we have a church that's where the culture here is, where people can really be honest about what they're carrying around. But one of the things we don't want to do is we don't, we don't, ever, we don't want to ever glorify, we don't ever want to glorify our, our shortcomings. We don't ever want to take our identity in unbelief, you know? We, we don't ever want to begin to absorb our identity and our, our shortcomings and our fallings. We don't want to tell lies about where we're at, but at the same time, we don't want to say, you know, the reason that I'm an authentic Christian is because I can tell you I'm really angry with God and I, I really don't believe half this stuff. And that's become a hallmark in our culture. That's why it's such a big deal, you know? It, it, here's the deal. It's really not, it, it's really, it, 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 I want to say this without being like a, a big hard guy. Unbelief only leads to death. That's all, that's all I can tell you. Unbelief only leads to death. Lack of joy. Joy comes in his presence. I have another way to say it, but it's just hard. So I'm not going to say it. See, the, we live in a culture where unbelief and doubt are expected but the trajectory of the kingdom is laid along the path of worship and gratitude. They're just, they're diametrically opposed to one another. If we don't get anything else today, I want us to grab this. That not everything that I have in my life that is good is because I was smart and because I was hardworking. Like if we can overcome anything as Americans, man, we gotta get to that. Like not everything I have in my life is because I'm good 
and I'm smart and I'm hardworking. Look, being a hard worker, that honors the Lord. That's a good thing. Don't Make no mistake. This is not a message to go out and quit your job and be lazy. The Bible says the one who doesn't take care of his family is worse than an unbeliever. But not everything I have in my life is because I was smart, good, and hardworking. It's because God made me and he cares for me and he has planned my life for good. Likewise, not every hard thing in my life means that God has forsaken me. Jesus said in this life, you will have trouble. At some point, you're going to end up in the desert of sin and there's not going to be any water and it doesn't mean that God has turned his back on you. It's not the time to start saying, wow, he has brought me this far only to kill me in the desert of sin. Both of those thoughts are are, are toxic. We will worship what we believe and we will believe what we worship. So what should we do? We should cultivate thankfulness and we should cultivate worship in our life because thankfulness brings me into his presence. When I'm into his presence, that's where I experience the fullness of joy. When I'm into his presence, that's where I encounter his goodness. When, I'm into his, when I enter his presence, that's where I see him for who he really is. And when I'm in his presence, I worship God because he's great and he is good. And when I worship God, my heart becomes soft and it's the kind of place where faith can grow. And when my faith grows, I live life with God and he leads me into blessing and into paths of life. Amen? Amen. This is actually a, this is a big deal. We're, we're going to do some different things for the next three or four weeks, but this is, a, this is a really big deal for our church and for our culture at large. Is putting on, putting on glasses that see the activity of God in our life. Amen? All right, if you're on the ministry team this morning, I want you to, I want you to come on up.